Well, welcome City Life family here tonight, a little family gathering. But I look out, what I see is there's a lot of people resting right now. We can't see. It's a beautiful thing because they're going to come back stronger as families, marriages, generosity, stewardship. Resting, serving. And I just want to give a shout out to some people that served last Tuesday night, which was National Night Out. Um, where it connects the community with uh, first responders, teachers, all that jazz. So we did it at College Square where we do food distribution every month, where we've just really built a a relationship with that community. But I got Starbucks gift cards for, what is it, Marina was there, Brian and Cassie were there, the Hoys were there, Lisa Tucker was there. So uh, maybe somebody I forgot, but they're all in that stack. So uh, I will get those to you if you're too homely. I don't need it. I'm going to find you between this week and next week and bless you guys because we, we just love the heart to serve. I mean, I was able to, to get on a mic, Marina was as well, and just address the first responders that were there, the people from the city that were there. And I just reminded them that when you serve people out of love, you look like Jesus. When you serve and, and it's out of love, whether you mean to or not, like whether your goal is to look like Jesus or not, you resemble Jesus in those moments. And uh, it was just a powerful reminder. So everybody there that was serving, you looked like Jesus in those moments. And this idea of, of our sanctification, meaning day in, day out, I'm trying to look more and more like Jesus. For me, that's something I have to, to think about, remind myself. Otherwise, it's so easy to drift. And like we talked about last week, just conform to, to everything that's going on around me. So that's something I have to keep in mind. But something that I've realized, the transformation that's going on in my life, ways that I'm being morphed that I don't even have to think about, is I'm becoming like that stereotypical dad. Right? I'm not wearing like New Balances yet or the Jesus sandals, right? That's a level I haven't, I haven't leveled up to that yet. I'm still a beginner, man. I'm still working this out. Don't have the transition lenses yet. All that, that's boss levels. I'm, I'm a novice here. But one of the ways I realized that I'm becoming like that dad is I was talking to some of my college friends last week, and it used to be that most of my references, the jokes, the things you're in conversation, throwing stuff in there, it's from like 90s, early 2000s, movies, shows, songs. And I realized like most of the stuff I quote now is like an animated movie. It's Secret Life of Pets. It's Lilo and Stitch, Moana, Baby Bum, all these different things. That's what I joke and and toss around because that's what Steph understands. (laughs) And that's what Raj is watching. But uh, one of the things he's started watching recently is Daniel the Tiger. So I say Daniel the Tiger. Some of y'all just heard a melody in your head about grown-ups always coming back or how to calm down. Some of you are like, what is a Daniel the Tiger? And you probably don't have a toddler or a child in your home. Um, Daniel the Tiger, uh, you maybe haven't heard of Daniel the Tiger. You've probably heard of Mr. Rogers, right? Daniel the Tiger, it took me a while to figure this out. Mr. Rogers had all those puppets. Daniel the Tiger, the, the people, characters in Daniel the Tiger are those puppets. It's animated. Light bulb moment for me. Maybe it's a light bulb moment for you because I didn't watch a lot of Mr. Rogers coming up and growing up, but Mr. Rogers was the man. He was prolific. One of the most prolific shows in the history of television. Almost had 900 episodes, Mr. Rogers and his show. Try binging all that in a weekend. <laughs> we probably don't remember him as such, though, but he was a minister. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister who had this special ordination that the denomination gave him to minister to children and their families through television. And he did just that. Like, he 
taught kids about emotions. He taught them about empathy. He taught people that no matter what's happened to you in life, what you've done or what people have done to you, you have value, you have worth. These are the things that he taught through his show. And we're in this series on words. We're in this series on the power of words and their definitions. Mr. Rogers understood the power of words. Every day when he entered into his office, right before filming, he would pray, Dear God, let some word that is heard be yours. Before every episode, he would meet with child psychologists to go over the script because he realized he's speaking to kids. Is this going to speak to kids the way I want it to speak to them? He understood the power of words and probably the most famous words that Mr. Rogers ever uttered are what? Won't you be my neighbor, right? And today I want to look at that word neighbor. What does that word neighbor mean to our culture? What does that word neighbor mean to us? And the dictionary defines neighbor as a person near or next to the person speaking. The dictionary's definition, we see it's determined by nearness or proximity. But how we, God's people, define neighbor, it's incredibly key. After all, what Jesus points to as the greatest two commandments are, are what? Love God and love your neighbor. Right? Deuteronomy 6.5 is where we get the first one. It says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Leviticus 19.18 is the next. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Ben, if you could actually throw that slide up, I have no living idea where my clicker is. So you roll with me, all right? <laughs> neighbor in this culture, as we see through this, it was synonymous with a fellow Israelite. Your people, members of your community. It falls in line with what we would see in dictionaries. It was determined by proximity, right? And this was their script, the lens that they operated from. One that Jesus affirms in Luke 10, as we'll read in a moment. But, you know, this was also the same perspective that caused Jesus' church in his hometown, the region of Nazareth, to want to kill him. Like the first day of his ministry, as he's announcing his ministry, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. You know, we talk all the time about how religious leaders, like they led to his crucifixion and his murder. But I think sometimes we forget his own home church in Luke 4 was trying to throw Jesus off a cliff when he announced his ministry. Why? Well, he elevated and in doing so challenged their definition of the word neighbor, right? In, in Luke 4, Jesus is in this service in his hometown, probably much like this, right? Bunch of family. And he stands up and he does the reading for the day, which is Isaiah 61, right? This beautiful passage about the coming and calling of the Messiah. And he says, look, this is fulfilled today. And these people are hyped. They're ready to crown him. They're excited about Jesus and his calling, but in an instant, everything changes. Because Jesus goes on to explain that his ministry wouldn't be limited by cultural boundaries, tribal boundaries, racial boundaries, pointing in that moment to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, which were the same way. And then it says in Luke 4 that they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. These people, as you would say today, were fully triggered. They were triggered, and they were troubled. And what was troubled and was trouble for them was in the definition of this word neighbor. They had a shallow definition of the word neighbor. And as a result, they had a shallow love. And as a result, they were counter to Christ. 
They, they, were really, they were ready to throw the Messiah off a cliff. And in Luke 4, we see this wave of support, and then he throws this curveball, and we see the same thing in Luke chapter 10. If you want to throw that up, Ben. I'm going to read Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 25 through 37. Those are just the first few on the screen. But it's the, you may have heard of it, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So in Luke 10, in my Bible here, it says expert in the law. If you've got a different translation, I think it might be new living, it says lawyer. Right, so a lawyer or an expert in the law, you might think, oh, this is somebody that spends their time in courts, right, before judges, as there's trials going on. But what the Bible is speaking to here is, is he was an expert in biblical law. So this was somebody who knew the Bible inside and out. This was a scholar. He was super religious. This was the guy who would get on Twitter and win any debate on Scripture and what it meant. He knew all the verses. And he comes to Jesus with what is a good question, what mankind has wrestled with for ages. What do I have to do to save myself, to have salvation, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he so often does, he responds to his question with a question. Jesus has this way of doing things. He, he responds to questions with questions, and he looks at this expert in the law, and he says, well, how do you read it, right? What does it say? He appeals to his expertise, and the lawyer responds with the very verses we opened with, right? The verse in Deuteronomy, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the verse in Leviticus, love your neighbor. Jesus says, you're right. So at this point, the lawyer's got to be feeling pretty good about himself, right? He's feeling pretty jazzed. He's like, I'm checking these boxes, and he could have left in that moment and uh, pat himself on the back and felt good for the rest of the day. But it says, looking to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? And he likely expects Jesus to reply with the truth we see in Leviticus 19, where it implies by saying fellow Israelite, and some translations say, like, within your community. In Leviticus, it talks about before this command of loving your neighbor about fellow Israelites. So, if this is where Jesus was going, 
This guy's thinking, man, I can check this box. I can dot all my I's and cross my T's on my application for eternal life today and have full assurance for the rest of my life. I can feel justified based on what I've done. And everybody's going to think, wow, this guy is amazing. But Jesus doesn't go there. He gets a little more than he was asking for. You know, we can get in trouble in the same way when we seek to justify ourselves. Because as lawyer thinks, like our culture so often thinks, and sometimes we can buy into that if we somehow do enough, that we'll justify ourselves before God. Or we'll earn his love or, or we'll be able to get eternal life that we can somehow justify ourselves by what we do. If I'm good enough and I do enough, I can tip the scales in my favor. That's what so many religions teach us. But let me ask, does anyone here feel like in your life you have loved God with all of your heart, right, all of your affection, every bit of your adoration, all of your mind, right, all of your attention, all of your focus, and then on top of that, you've loved your neighbor and the people in need with the same focus and energy with which you love yourself. Anybody? Show of hands. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Tyler fake one. Give a little pump fake. But that's the point. We can't. Right? The religions of this world, again, they fool us into thinking that we can earn our way or do enough, but the gospel is, hey, you're saved by grace alone, right? You're only justified through Jesus. I don't, I don't hold my justification. Jesus won my justification at the cross. But rather than going for the jugular in this way, right, Jesus, he tells a story, tells this parable of, of this man who had been beaten within an inch of his life by robbers. But to understand this parable, we have to understand who Samaritans were, and that will enhance the meaning for us. Because Samaritans, they date back to the 8th century B.C. when the Assyrians conquered Jerusalem and they exiled the Israelites, but they left behind the poorest of the poor. So these people were already, right, the despised who weren't being taken care of. They were the poorest of the poor. They were left behind while the rest of the Israelites went into exile. And then when they were left behind, they intermarried with the Samarians. So they became what the Jews saw as a half-breed, right, half-Jew, half-Samarian. And it wasn't just their bloodline, their worship of Yahweh mixed in some pagan traditions. So the Jews saw the Samaritans as, again, half-breeds, lesser than those people over there. Like, they, when they were traveling, they would go around the Samaritans just so they wouldn't even have to set foot on the same ground. They had teachings in, in their teachings that if you, if you ate Samaritan bread... Right, you bought Samaritan bread off, off the shelf on food line, it's on clearance. You eat that, it was like eating the flesh of, of swine, which to them was unclean. In their, in their synagogue ceremonies, there were prayers they would pray. They would ask God not to show grace and mercy to the Samaritans. You imagine like we're in service and I'm like, God, I pray you wouldn't show grace and mercy to these people over there. Right, that's wild. But that actually went both ways. Right, the, the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. There was no love loss. They grew up and operated seeing those people that aren't us through caricatures, dehumanizing, even demonizing characters. Like all Samaritans are fill in the blank. <laughs> in the other direction, all Jews are fill in the blank. Sound familiar? All conservatives are fill in the blank. All liberals are fill in the blank. All pro-choice people are fill in the blank. All pro-life people fill in the blank. Everybody that voted for this person, fill in the blank. Jesus is saying in this text that we have to look beyond all these broken cultural characters and see one another's humanity. See that they're our neighbor. They're not static creatures, static objects. Jesus' ultimate answer is so crucial. 
And we got it on the screen because the lawyer, his question treated the idea of a neighbor as an object that he would act upon. If you can back it up, Ben. It was back up there. We read the parable and we consider the man jumped and we ask, does this man qualify as neighbor? But Jesus flips the question. He, He ends by asking a new question, not was he a neighbor, but which one of these three was a neighbor to the man in need? You know what, like, I, maybe I realized it before and I just forgot, but something that was notable to me studying this week is Jesus asks this, this lawyer that had been raised up in this perspective of Samaritans as lesser than, right, us and those people over there, this nationalism and racism that saw Samaritans as less than. Jesus asked, who of the three was the good neighbor? And it's almost like he couldn't even come to grips with saying the word Samaritan. Like the whole idea of a good Samaritan for him would have been an oxymoron. Like, does that even exist? So he says, well, the the one who showed him mercy. See, the lawyer tried to assess who his neighbor was. And Jesus gives him a, a better question. Am I a neighbor to those who are in need? Do I show mercy to those who have needs? You know, we so often love to use scripture as windows to look at other people, microscopes to assess other people. We love to stand in judgment of others and through this lens of assessment ask questions like, is this person my neighbor? Is this need actually valid? Should they even be upset? But Jesus takes the question neighbor and he holds it up as a, a mirror. He says, actually get off your high horse and assess yourself. Are you neighborly? That's the question. Do you show grace and mercy to those who need it? Because that is what makes a neighbor. You know, neighboring well, loving our neighbors, walking in the greatest commandment. It's about my identity, not theirs. It's about my heart, not who they are, what they look like, what they behave like. You know, when we adopted Raj, or actually in the process, we're in the process of adopting Raj. It was a four-year marathon. And you can imagine over the course of four years, you have a a lot of conversations with people about why we're doing it. They want to know why you're adopting, uh, what are your dreams for, where are you adopting from. And over the course of four years, uh, there were a lot of those conversations. And I can, (laughs) there were many who asked questions like, well, why don't you adopt from your own? Or why don't you take care of the kids who need help on your own soil? And I'd like to say that I gave them all like a, a, a short, courteous, uh, friendly explanation. Some of them got the, the short and courteous, like I had places to be. Some people got these sermon notes, but like fire and brimstone version. Uh, I don't like to lie from the pulpit, I got to be honest. Because I wanted to make sure that they understood what I hope we all understand tonight, that the love of Jesus Christ, that the love Jesus Christ puts in us, that we're called to love our neighbor with, it's not based on proximity. It's based on humanity. It's not based on a common proximity. It's based on a common humanity. It's not based on nearness, whether we share soil. It's based on need. There's a lot of need all over the world. And when it comes to the love that's in me, right, that Jesus Christ has placed in me, you can place, take man-made borders and customs and throw them out the window. Because Jesus clearly teaches that a neighbor is not defined by proximity, but by humanity. And if it's defined by humanity, then guess what? Ethnicity doesn't matter. Nationality doesn't matter. Religion doesn't matter. Love your neighbor, period, the end. 
But the expert on religious law, he saw this Samaritan as a non-neighbor because the religious Jew would only be concerned with other religious Jews. There's literally a, a book called Sirach, which is spelled like Sriracha without the A. And it was this Jewish book of wisdom that explicitly says in chapter 12, don't help a sinner. This is what was being taught. But I'll tell you tonight that people have value before they ever have virtue. People are worthy of your love before they ever worship God. Right? They have dignity because they were created by God before they ever have a devotion to God. People of all shapes, sizes, and colors, they, they have worth and value because God created them. And we can sometimes get caught up in questions about who are we supposed to help. Do they qualify as a neighbor? Because if I help them, it's, it's going to cost me. Listen, the priest had legitimate cultural risk concerns. He had legitimate cultural reasons not to help the man in the ditch. Because for all he knows, he's looking at this body. Right? He doesn't even know if it's alive. The Bible says he's beaten within an inch of his life. And if this priest or the Levite were to go over and touch this body, they're ritually unclean. For them, that meant they would have to go offer another sacrifice in the temple, which cost money and resources, cost time, and they would have to go back to Jerusalem to do this and then come all the way back again. If that body was dead, they'd be made unclean. There were ritual reasons, right? but we'll never know their reasons or excuse. Why? Because Jesus doesn't give them, and I think that's his point. Any excuse is irrelevant. What's relevant is they were actively choosing not to follow the command to love their neighbor. Right? Jesus is saying, whatever your excuse is for withholding compassion, get rid of it. Throw it out the window. The priest also could have said it's his fault for traveling down this dangerous road alone. Right? This, this road that Jesus is talking about is not some made-up road in a made-up world. No, this passage from Jerusalem to Jericho was a commonly traveled one. And there were portions of it that were robbers were common. People getting jumped like this was common. There was a passage of it called the Pass of Blood, right? You're traveling the Pass of Blood. You probably don't want to travel alone. You probably want to travel in daylight when a bunch of people are on this path. And maybe the priest or Levite could have said, well, he could, shouldn't have put himself in this situation. You know, again, how often do we put ourselves in the position to assess the validity of the problem? But Jesus doesn't ask, was the man in need a neighbor worthy of helping? He asked the question, who was the neighbor to the one in need? Right. The answer, the one who showed mercy. And then what does Jesus say? Go and do likewise. Go and do. Be a neighbor. Right? There's a world that's crying out, won't you be my neighbor? Show mercy. Meet my needs. But there's three things that I just want to hit on tonight that I believe hurt our ability to neighbor well. Be a neighbor. Follow the the great command to be a neighbor. This is key in following Christ. And the first is ethics in abstract. What does that mean? You know, Jesus is adept as he was throughout his ministry. He shows it here at taking questions about ethics that are kind of abstract. And he just takes them and he spins it and he applies it to real life. And we should take note of this in our day and age because social media has created this ability to reflect on tragic situations in the abstract, right? Read up on it, maybe even post about it, throw a hashtag on it, and then log off and kind of forget it ever happened. You can see it in our faith where we, we go to church, we kind of log in, we download for 90 minutes, and then we walk out those doors, log off, and, and it just becomes detached from our life. 
All of these things detach our, our, our heart and our head from our actions, our ethics from our actions. You know, there are plenty of Christians going to church that are like the religious leader in this passage. We got the latest bestseller from a Christian author on our coffee table. Right? We talk theology. We even debate doctrine. We, we clean ourselves up. We get our own act together. But there's no go and do. We talk about issues in abstract, but we never get dirty. And that's why religious people can make some of the worst neighbors. We can be the priest and Levite in the passage. We can be the religious leader, uh, expert in the law where we've got head knowledge, but it stops at the neck. Right? It never makes it to where we're Jesus' hands and feet. And it paralyzes the church. It paralyzes our faith. What's in our heads, our ethics are supposed to affect our actions. Others, like, it's like having the manual for something you're never going to use. If you just got all these ideas, right? Information isn't how we fulfill the call of God. For us or the church loved us. Loving God, loving our neighbor. But, you know, anytime you start talking about the importance of doing it's equally important to, to remind everyone here of the reality of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, not by what we do. Right? Our justification, our salvation is through the blood of Jesus Christ and not what we do. But if you keep reading, in Ephesians 2, 10, it makes it clear we're saved for the work in advance that God prepared for us to do. The work of, of loving people, loving God and loving neighbor. But often we don't get to that. And the trouble for you may not be ethics in abstract. It might be that you're simply numbed by suffering. Right? Another thing that social media has done to us is, is it, it's increased our exposure to events. Like we know about things as it's happening. All these events in the news, these tragedies, they just wash over us again and again to the point where we can become numb. Right? Awareness is a good thing. Becoming desensitized is not. And when we become numb, we can cut off compassion. There's a great quote by Mr. Rogers. You've probably seen it after tragedies post on social media where he says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. You know, it's a beautiful reminder when we face tragedy, but we should also remember that Mr. Rogers was speaking to children. Right? Children don't have agency. What I mean is children can't see a tragedy and say, well, I'm going to go get in my car and go give blood at the blood banker. They can't go volunteer at the local food pantry. They can't hop in their car to help dig through rubble. Right? They don't have agency. But we do. Right? We can make choices, not just to look for helpers, but to be a helper in significant ways, right? We can choose not to just look for helpers, but be one. But what does that take? It takes compassion. The Samaritan comes along and it says he felt compassion for the guy in the ditch. And compassion, its definition is key. It's not some shallow idea. It's to have such a strong feeling for somebody that their situation, it's like it punches you in the gut, like it hurts you physically. The same word in the Greek that they use for compassion is used for your spleen. <laughs> So it's literally like compassion, it's, it's not being numb. It's the opposite of being numbed. It's being pained by it so much, it's like you've been punched in the gut. Which is why our constant exposure to suffering and to tragedy and the numbness that follows or can follow 
It's dangerous because to be numb to those in need is to be numb to Christ. Right? We sing songs that cry out, I just want to be where you are. There's a, a song, can't even think of the singer's name, that I'm just hooked on right now. It's, I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here at your feet. I think that's a cry of all our hearts, that, that we would find Jesus and live in his presence. You know, in Matthew 25, Jesus himself said, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You want to be close to Christ? Bring the needs of humanity into your proximity. Go and do, regardless of ethnicity, race, or creed. The Franciscan author, Richard Rohr, put it this way, to be Christian is to see Christ in everyone. Again, we brought Raj into our home uh, from Pune, India, some over 8,000 miles away. But you know, depending on who you ask, they'll tell you there's up to 20 million orphans in India. Raj was one. For Steph and I to adopt him and then look at each other like, hey, we made a difference. It's like you're at Noah's flood. You take a bucket of water out and you like, I made a difference. It's just such a massive, overwhelming problem. There's so many needs. That's just orphans in India. Think about the whole world. People dying of hunger. All these needs in the world. Needs in our own backyard. Kids with food anxiety at Creekside Elementary or College Square. The needs can be so big that we just become overwhelmed. Right, but let me take some pressure off. Being a good neighbor, it's not about helping everyone with every need, but it's about finding your piece in the puzzle. There's a void somewhere that you were created to fill. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say that Jesus, right, went to the cross, died for you by name so that you could be saved by grace through faith. The same thing applies to Ephesians 2.10. There is a work that God prepared in advance for you to do. God didn't save us so we could sit back on our hands. He saved us so that we could be a help to humanity. Mr. Rogers, he also said that a high school student once wrote to ask, what was the greatest event in American history? I can't say. However, I suspect that like so many great events, it was something very simple and very quiet with little or no fanfare. The really important great things are never center stage of life's dramas. They're always in the wings. And that's why it's so essential for us to be mindful of the humble and the deep rather than the flashy and the superficial. You know, to love our neighbor and fulfill what Jesus called, right, the greatest command. We can't allow ourselves to have ethics in the abstract or to be numbed by all the tragedy and suffering. And we also can't allow ourselves to be numbed to the, the state of the body of Christ, right, the church. You know, the, the third would be we can't be blind to the state of the body. You know, as service was getting ready to start last week, Dustin comes up to me down the center aisle. I was like, did you hear about what happened in El Paso? I had been on my phone all afternoon. I had no idea of the shooting that went down right before we started service. By the next morning, there had been another shooting. And I don't pivot to address everything from the pulpit or we would never spend time in God's word because there's so many things happening. But this also has to do with the pews. It has to do with the church. You know, this is the body of Christ, and if your limb is broken or it's, it's, it's hurting, you don't ignore it, you tend to it, right? To, to be numb to it, that's like spiritual leprosy where you can't even feel your limbs. You start losing limbs. We don't want to lose limbs in the body. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 6, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, in the Bible, yeast is a metaphor for pride because when you put yeast in dough, what does it do? Puffs it up, Exactly. Pride, when you boil it down, right, when you get to the heart of it, it's worship of self. It's putting yourself at the center. 
And when you're prideful and you worship self, you either consciously or unconsciously exalt your own attributes, your own tribe, and you make a god out of it. Pride is at the root of racism. Pride is at the root of tribalism. Pride is at the root of nationalism. And it's not some new problem. It's not a new problem at all. Much of the New Testament is the Holy Spirit trying to uproot God's people from these flawed ways of thinking that were rooted in pride. It starts with Luke 4, the account we talked about, where Jesus announced his calling as Messiah and how it wouldn't be hindered by cultural or tribal or racial boundaries. And then from Christ's ascension into the book of Acts and the epistles, we see the Holy Spirit uprooting God's people, the Jews, from the way they had separated and isolated themselves and their worship from the Samaritans or the Gentiles over here where it was us and them, us and them. Right? The Jews weren't so much looking to see Gentiles saved as they wanted to see them nationalized when Paul condemned their thinking in Galatians 5.9 and said, this false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. Again, yeast. Again, pride. Again, the centering of self and our image and our tribe and exalting it. Again, nationalism isn't new. Right? And with, with the nationalism that's being dealt with in Galatians, there's no white people involved. These are all brown-skinned brothers in Christ. But white nationalism is simply America's brand of nationalism because those in power have long been white. Right? So why do I bring this up? Because white supremacists, white nationalists, or, or racists of any kind, right, shouldn't feel comfortable in pews in the church. Right? You should feel comfortable when you first come in, right, that we are sinners. This is a place for grace. But you shouldn't be able to last long in that sin without feeling challenged in that belief. Because you're certainly not going to be comfortable in heaven where every tribe, tongue, nation is represented, praising God together in different languages, right? But we allow for that thinking when there's this shallow definition of neighbor that doesn't reflect Jesus' teaching and application, right? It, again, it's not based on common proximity. It's based on common humanity. It's not based on common ethnicity, but common humanity, you know, a low definition of neighbor and, the, and, and therefore a, a low definition of love your neighbor is what allows for John T. Ernest to grow up in church. Who's John T. Ernest? He's the man who recently shot up a synagogue in April of this year. His manifesto, you read it, he clearly understood Christian theology, clearly understood God's word. He was a member of a local Presbyterian church, right, the same, the same stream that gave us Mr. Rogers, he was raised in pews, not unlike ours. You know, the first impulse in our tribal culture when a shooting happens is to distance our tribe from the shooter. But this man was a member of the church. Our second impulse is to dehumanize or demonize that person. But Jesus loved John T. Ernest. Jesus died for him and every perpetrator of every mass shooting. And as a pastor, I think, how tragic is it that nobody in the church he grew up in loved him enough to call him out? even if it was indirectly from the pulpit, to say, hey, if you draw lines in your love that are dictated by race or cultural distinction, you're not a follower of Christ as much as you are a, a part of that group that wanted to throw Christ off a cliff. When you're not for Jesus, he says you're against him, and that's the dangerous place to be. See, bigotry and self-worship is not just a danger to society, it's a danger to the, the one who believes it. Because it's like it says in Proverbs again and again, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to hell. Doesn't always lead to violence and physical damage, but it does spiritual damage to the one who clings to it. 
doesn't always lead to violence and damage, but it can lead to considerations of people and conversations about people that do damage to our spirit. Our hearts should break for the fact that that kind of mindset could, could grow in a church. And it's not going to here. And I don't bring all this up to pretend to have the answer for the fresh wave of political debates about topics that are, are back up at the forefront again. And I will say they're important debates, right? Talk to people all the time about how frustrating politics is. Politics is frustrating. But you know what? Politics is about people. And God loves people. And we're called to love our neighbor. So as frustrating as it is, we still engage in it. Because, again, we're called to love the people that politics affect. But ultimately, that's not going to bring revival. Revival is not going to come from Capitol Hill, a candidate that gets voted in, a law that gets passed down. No, it's going to come from a spirit-filled church that loves neighbor. Right? Ultimately, the chief concern of the church is kingdom come. Right? The Holy Spirit dwelling in the church and using the church to spark revival. You know, all the time, the church cries out, like, we want to be the church in Acts. Because we want the growth. <laughs> right? We want to be the, the early church that was just exploding. Like, God, give us that spirit. I'm always like, yeah, but without the persecution and the stonings, like, let's temper that cry to God. But you, my cry in response is, why don't we live like the early church? What am I talking about? The emperor Julian was a, a Roman emperor not long after Christ walked the soil of the Roman Empire. Christianity at the time was just surging. Paganism at the time, the Roman style of worship was in decline. And we get him on record just kind of lamenting, venting about the entire situation. He says, the religion of the Greeks does not prosper. Why do we not observe how the charity of Christians to strangers has done the most advance to their cause? It is disgraceful that these Christians support our poor in addition to their own while everyone is able to see our own people lack aid from us. Greeks were taking care of Greeks. Romans were taking care of Romans. What Emperor Virgilian called our people, right? Meanwhile, Christians were supporting, listen to his words, our people in addition to their own. This culture was operating from this, this perspective of us and them, us versus them. Sound familiar? <laughs> Again, tribalism, racism, none of that is new. It's not a new issue. Meanwhile, Christians were showing love of Christ not just to their own people, but to strangers. At the perspective of Christ that says, me for them, us for them. Because really, ultimately, when you get down to it, there's only us. There is no us in them. There's, there's us. I'm a human. You're a human. We're all part of a humanity that needs a Savior, needs Jesus Christ. And what was causing the growth for the church? Being a good neighbor to strangers, to them over there. What was grabbing the attention of emperors and kings? Being neighborly. Not based on ethnicity, not based on a common proximity, based on common humanity. I'm human, you're human, we need Jesus, let's rally. That's what sparked revival for the early church. You know, if I could have the worship team come up to bring it full circle, Mr. Rogers would have been a fan. <laughs> he once said, we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, it's not my community, it's not my world, it's not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond, and I consider those people my heroes. You know, you read scripture, there's only one hero, one ultimate hero, which is Jesus Christ. But why is he the hero? Because he stepped down from the throne room of heaven to meet a need that all of humanity had, to step down and serve. Again, we look most like Christ when we serve. And we Christians, little Christs, 
his followers, we should be moved with the same kind of compassion. You know, Jesus is always the hero. He solved the puzzle, but we all have a piece in that puzzle that we're called to meet. And we look like him when we leave this place tonight, go out those doors, leave these four walls, and we find needs and, and meet them and show mercy. Not being neighborly based on nearness, but based on needs that need to be met. Not numbed by just a wave of tragedy that we seem to see on the news every day, but by feeling compassion. That sometimes feels like a punch in the gut, but always moves us to action. Not blind to the yeast of the enemy and the divisions fueled by pride. Not practicing abstract ethics, but heeding the call to go and do likewise. May we go and do, see a need, and respond, showing mercy to the one in need. Not asking who is my neighbor, but replying to the call of so many in the world, won't you be my neighbor? Am I neighborly? Has Jesus impacted my heart enough? It's not the people in the world that change, it's my heart that changes. When all of a sudden I'm moved by compassion. You know, whether it's the kid that's alone at the lunch table, <laughs> the person at the corner with a cardboard sign, it might be one that doesn't vote like us, talk like us, look like us, but eventually we come to realize there's no us in them. Again, we're, it's all us. If you're human, you're living, you're breathing, <laughs> guess what, we both need Jesus. Let's rally around that. Let's pursue Jesus together. That, when we have that perspective, that's when we'll see revival again. But if you could stand, we're gonna go into worship. You know a song, we, we're not singing it tonight, but I mean, maybe because it's been played out. Reckless love, right? I still love it, right? We still love it. But it talks about there's no wall that, that he won't tear down when he comes after us. I think sometimes we, we might feel like that's the wall of Jericho, some walls that other people have erected that are in God's way to get to us. But sometimes there's walls that we just let reside in our heart that he needs to kick down. It might be a wall of pride, but it might also be a wall of guilt and shame where we've just let it separate us from the heart of God. Let me tell you tonight, we're going to sing this song, I'm a child of God. You are a son and daughter of God. And whether or not you feel full of virtue, there's a value in that. You know, if you've made Jesus Lord of your life, it says he's your brother. You're his brother or sister. We're in the family. God wants to love on you tonight, remind you of his love. And God, I pray that anything, anything at all, whether it's what we've talked about tonight or it's something that happened this week or, or, or we think our sins are too great, whatever it is that's separating us from you, God, kick it down, tear it down. Help us, Lord God, to meet you in this place tonight and not walk out those doors and, and check out, log off, Lord God. God, we thank you that the same spirit that's present here, the same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave, doesn't say it's in this sanctuary. No, it's in me. It's in you. It goes with us. Holy Spirit, fall on us. Again, like that church in Acts. And give us a boldness, not just in what we believe, not just in, in, in our mind and, and being confident, but Lord God, in our hands and feet to reach the people around us that have physical needs and have spiritual needs. God, need the hope that we have. But God, we thank you that first and foremost, we're a child of God. That our identity, again, under the blood, 
is your son and your daughter. We thank you that just like when my son, he comes up and he, he grabs my arm and tugs on my shirt. I never say no. I always pick him up. There was a time in his life where he didn't get that. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you didn't know God, but he wants to pick you up tonight and remind you of his love. God, I pray you would do that in this place. Remind us of your love and let it overflow from our hearts so much that we can't keep it to ourselves. And we can't hold it back from anyone. We ask this in Jesus' name and we praise you in this place. If you need prayer for anything, I'd love to pray for you. But also Emily and Caitlin would love to pray for you. But let's worship. Oh, the sun sets free. Oh, it's free and deep. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I forsaken I am who you say I am and you are for me and not against me I am who you say I am I am chosen not forsaken I am who you say I am and you are for me not against Good job. 